You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual everybody, I am away this week, so I don't have a show opening rant for you. Apologize about that. If something crazy happened out there in politics or sex land and you were hoping to hear me comment on it, I won't be able to. But I will say this. Terry and I made a donation to VoteFromHome2020.org. It's a well-vetted political organization doing really great work in swing states, registering new black and Latino voters and then following up with them to make sure that they understand the vote-by-mail process and get their ballots and votes in early. Every $25 donated votefromhome2020.org gets vote-by-mail applications to 20 voters and then follows up with those voters. It's a really great org. It's a really great effort. It's a really great, positive, constructive thing that you can do right now to help turf out these fascists in Washington, D.C., Go to votefromhome2020.org and join me and Terry in making a donation. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, even more cues and even more A's than usual because we have such a short opening. And coming up in the Magnum that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, Caitlin Doty is here, mortician Caitlin Doty, to talk with us about all things death. And as only Caitlin Doty can do, talking about death with Caitlin Doty is always really fun. That's on the Magnum. Subscribe to Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. I've got a quarantine success story. I and my husband live in a large metropolitan city. And since the coronavirus, the protests, which are justified having a horrible, abusive in-law live with us for a couple months, are usually great. Sex life really flatlined. To top it all off, my father passed away of uh, after a 12-year battle with Alzheimer's. He passed away from COVID-19. So we came down to rural middle America uh, to stay in the woods with my family to process this and do the memorial. And for the first time in months, we were able to have sex. We went out to the woods, uh, found a spot by the creek, stood up by a tree, and we had the best sex we've had in months. Uh, To top it all off, he's back in our big city. I'm down here for a month to help out with the family and we're finally starting to like reignite things again having phone sex all the time and just remembering how much we really enjoy each other thank you for sharing your success story and i love it and it's a really good example uh, and there's a lesson here for all listeners that in a long-term committed relationship, the tide can go out. If you stew in resentment, if you get super angry about it, if you don't recognize the reasons the tide might have gone out, maybe you won't be standing there on the beach when the tide fucking rolls back in. Just because you're flatlining now as a couple doesn't mean it'll always be this way, but you have to not succumb to resentment and anger. You just have to be receptive. You have to be open to that walk in the woods down to the creek, back against the tree moment, and it's likely to come your way if you are open to it and not angry about it. Thank you so much. If you have a sexual success story you'd like to share and that we could play at the top of the show, give us a call to us, 6302-2064. Hi, Dan. My boyfriend of one year and I have been broken up for two months now, and we plan to talk soon. I am of mixed feelings about getting back together but I'm considering some possibilities. 
I do love him and miss him, but the reasons behind the breakup basically had to do with his anger issues, as well as some other issues, including sex. The anger stuff is the main issue, but I want to ask you about the sex things to keep it focused. We find each other very sexy, and I'm so turned on by him. I cannot not think of him when I jerk off uh, in the time that we've been apart. He used to do a lot of webcamming and was kind of a star. He was never too kinky on there, but he did a ton of stuff for, for years for countless strangers. When we got together, I didn't know about any of that until later on. But when I found out, I was totally cool with it and even turned on by it. But the issue came up that when it came to intimacy between us, he didn't want to be kinky at all. I am definitely more kinky and I love things like eating ass and using toys and a little bit of pain. Nothing crazy, but definitely I like creativity and some form of foreplay adventure. The thing is, he never really wanted to do it. Early on in the relationship, he would partake a little bit. But over time, he started to refuse and even belittled me about it all. Like it was gross to want to eat his butt or weird to want to get spanked. He really just wanted to fuck with no foreplay for a few minutes and then be done. He was kind, though, and he waited for me to finish every time. But honestly, his refusals to do things like spank, spank me and fool around before sex really started to get to me, especially when I was made to feel silly for it. It would be amazing for him to put on a little show for me. But I never asked because he certainly would not. He might even be offended. Anyways, it seems like he may want to get back together. And since I left him... I see there may be a way, but I'm skeptical. Anger is issue number one. He needs to deal with that. But is this also an opportunity to open up some sexual terms of re-engagement? Why can he put so much time and energy into making strangers come but be super vanilla and dismissive when it comes to his lover? Is it a non-starter or do you see an opening? There seems to be a distinction between what he's willing to do for money and what he's willing to do for love. Maybe your ex-boyfriend and my money's on, yeah, you might want to keep him the ex-boyfriend and not get back together with him, particularly if he hasn't dealt with his anger problems. You say he needs to deal with those anger issues. I would really encourage you to find out if he's done anything to actually deal with them. Is he speaking to a shrink or a therapist who specializes in anger management and getting a handle on that. If he hasn't, if that's still something he's talking about doing and still needs to do, don't get back together with this guy. That said, the sex thing, yeah, that's really a problem. He sounds like he has a very limited sexual range. He just sounds like a lousy lay and kind of inconsiderate. And he wants to edit your a bit more, I think, normative to you know range of sexual interest your desire for fucking foreplay in some form he wants to shame you about that to edit that out of your you know you know to make that impermissible to 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 get you to saw that off to please and appease him because he has a very limited sort of range of sexual interests or sexual expression that he can engage in with a partner as opposed to some stranger on the internet and maybe that's something else he needs to talk about with a therapist. Maybe he came to associate sexual adventurousness, playing with toys, being a little kinky 
with strangers, with people who didn't care about him, with people he didn't care about, maybe even with people that he held in some degree of contempt. It is not always the case that people doing sex work of any form, and cam work is a kind of sex work, particularly if you're putting on a show for someone who's paying you to put on that show. It's not always the case that those people look down on or, or hold in contempt or feel angry about their clients, about the people who are paying them. But it is sometimes the case. Some people do that work out of economic necessity, not out of a place of joy and resent having to do it and project that resentment not onto a political situation that impoverished them economically and left them with no other options, but project that resentment onto their clients who may not be mistreating them in any way, maybe tipping them well and being very courteous, and they still will project that anger onto their clients. If that's what went on for your boyfriend, he may have made, particularly if he did this for many years, you say he was sort of famous for doing this, he had some profile, If that went on for a very long time, it could have carved a very deep groove into him sexually. And now with somebody he cares about and loves, it's triggering perhaps for him to spank you or use toys or get his ass eaten or do anything that isn't just getting right to the fucking and the getting off. If that's the case, and I'm kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt here. Some people have a limited sexual range and are just selfish and it's not about trauma. But if that's the case, he needs to work on, at the same time that he works on his anger issues, breaking that link, that association that he made between being sexually adventurous, meeting somebody else's needs, performing for someone else, and this work. The work that he did, that he stopped doing, I guess for a reason, he wanted to stop doing it. Maybe he didn't enjoy it or maybe he just burnt out on it as some people do in any career, in any kind of job. And he needs to figure out how to connect with a lover and create new associations and carve a new groove in himself that allows him to see these things in a different light as something that two people who are equals, where there isn't a power imbalance, where somebody isn't being paid necessarily, that two people can enjoy these things together and give to each other. And, you know, I think, you know, sometimes all sex, all relationships are on some level transactional, but is the transaction motivated by a desire to please and by joy or by dependence or economic dependence or fear? That matters. And he can make that distinction, just like he can get on top of his anger issues. Maybe he'll need some help to make that distinction, but you're going to want him. You're going to have to require him, just as you're going to require him to get a grip on his anger issues, to make that distinction. Otherwise, you can't be with him. You want to be with somebody for the next, you know, you're young, the next five decades, you guys get back together, who can't meet your needs, won't meet your needs, make you feel bad about your needs, slut shames you, someone you have an unsatisfactory sex life with, Are you you want to sign up for that? Even if he gets a grip on the man- anger issues? No. No, you don't. So you go in there demanding if he wants to get back together with you, movement and progress on both fronts, anger and sex. Hi, Dan. I am a 31-year-old female, and I'm calling because I have a question regarding kids experimenting their sexuality or their sexual needs, which I've heard that they do have from a very young age. So I live in an apartment complex and I get along with all of my neighbors pretty well. 
And one of my neighbors is a couple who has a three-year-old girl. And since we live like right in front of each other, uh, it's pretty common that she's with me watching movies or just playing. Um, sometimes I do take care of her when their parents are working. And yesterday we were watching a movie and she started taking all of her clothes off by saying that she was hot. I do have an AC in my room and it was actually pretty cold because I was about to higher the temperature of it. And when she said that, she just like started taking off her clothes and say like, oh, I'm hot, I'm hot, aren't you hot? Like, don't you want to take your shirt off? And I was like, no, I'm okay. And then we we were watching a movie and I saw that she started touching herself. And that's when I was like, okay, what the fuck should I do? Like, <laughs> should I just like leave until their parents, knowing that I don't know how they would manage that? Should I tell her no? Like, don't do that. Should I ignore it? Again, I've heard that this is pretty normal in kids. But at the moment, I was just like, what should I do? And I'm still wondering, like, what should I do if this happens again? At the moment, I just kind of like ignored it. It was late and I was like a few minutes later, I was like, oh, you know, like, let's just uh, go back to your parents. It's late. Like, you should go to sleep, blah, blah, blah. And she left. But yeah, any advice on that will be very helpful. All those nerve endings that we enjoy in adulthood don't arrive in a FedEx box at age 18. They're there when we're kids and it can feel good to touch them, to touch our penises when we're little boys, three-year-olds, touch our vulva when we're little girls, three years old. And it's not evidence as some people assume with worst case scenario disorder, a particular kind of you know propensity to be overprotective where children are concerned, which I think is admirable, but it's not by itself evidence that a child has been exploited or, or sexually abused. It could just be that the child is unself-conscious and you know, the world being the world and, and you know, what's appropriate when you're with others being what's appropriate when you're with others, that child needs to be made conscious, not self-conscious, but conscious of what is and isn't appropriate when she is with other people, perhaps outside her family. It's fine for her to be maybe naked at home and with her parents, or maybe her parents get undressed when the air conditioner is on and they're very warm. Also bear in mind that children's bodies basically run hotter than adult bodies, which is why we're not necessarily supposed to freak out if a little kid doesn't want to wear a coat when the adults feel like a coat is absolutely necessary. So I would encourage you, I, I think you should communicate with the parent about what happened, that this is what happened and it, uh, and you can say it kind of made me uncomfortable. I wasn't sure what to do in that moment. Get their input and feedback. Don't hide this from them. And I would encourage you, if it were to happen again, to just be very clear in a non-angry, non-shamey way that she should keep her clothes on when she is with strangers and that touching her private parts or touching her genitals or go ahead and use the word vulva. If a kid can know what a finger is, a kid can know what a vulva is. And touching her vulva, as good as that might feel, is something for when she's alone, is a private thing, not something that you do with others. And you can tell her it makes you uncomfortable. 
She's three years old. She's old enough to know that other people have feelings and that her actions can impact their feelings. And then insist, ask, insist that she keep her clothes on and ask, insist that she not touch her private parts when you guys are together, when you're hanging out. And just be firm without being angry and be unambiguous without shaming. And that's totally possible, totally doable. Also, I do think you should check in with the parents. And if there were other signs of abuse, if this was one more thing that made you think that something terrible was being done to this child, then perhaps you would want to consider getting the authorities involved. But just this, a small child who wants to take their clothes off and unselfconsciously touches themselves in front of you, not enough to inflict the trauma of a visit from CPS or foster care on that child and on that family. But definitely communicate with the parents about it and get their input too. Hey, Dan, I'm a 34-year-old, basic, single, hetero, cis guy calling from the Midwest. So I have a little predicament I want to run by you. Two years ago, I met a lady in my circle of friends who was back visiting from one of the coasts, having grown up where I live now. We really hit it off, and a few months later, on our second visit, we hooked up. We kept in touch and would hang out every time she was back in town, but more so as friends after that one-time hookup. Since that time, we've developed a close friendship, and I would now even consider her among my besties. Over the past year and a half, she's been dating a guy where she lived out on, the, on that coast. About one month ago, she and him moved back to our area. This has been awesome having her here, and I really like her now fiancé, as they even got married a few months ago. He is head over heels into her, which is awesome, and I'm happy for them. So here's the issue. I recently planned a trip for a large group of friends, including them, up to a cabin up north, as we say here. The three of us all work from home, and we planned on staying an extra few days together in another cabin once everyone leaves. I've been so excited for this trip, but I recently found out she never told them about our one-time hookup when we first met. Now I have a ton of anxiety about the trip and what our dynamic may be moving forward. For whatever reason, I've always had close female friends and I've had a ton of bad experiences with jealous boyfriends, even when there's no attraction or never having hooked up. Some of these instances have been horribly dramatic and awkward, so I'm a little traumatized in this regard, to be honest. So I would love your advice. My initial thought is it's probably best she be up front with her fiance rather than him finding out later and then potentially being upset and suspicious of our friendship. She initially said she does not feel she needs to disclose everything about her past private life, but now I think she has some anxiety as well since I brought up my concerns and I think she's currently on the fence about whether to tell him. I really don't want anything to get in the way of our friendship, and I would like to potentially be friends with him too without things being weird. But then again, it's not my choice or my relationship, even though it does affect me. What do you think, Dan? Do you think she should be up front or keep her past private? So I have a follow-up question because I think well, it yeah. matters to me, I guess, and- you're going on this trip with a bunch of people, right? There's other people going up to this, at least the first cabin with you? Yeah, the first one is going to be like 14 of us, and then it's just us three on the second. And in the 14, you know, the the 11 other people, are there people who know that you and this woman hooked up once upon a time? I think a, yeah, I think a couple would. Okay. You know, it's funny, she's more... 
you know, it's kind of like you know, mostly my circle of friends, and I'm kind of bringing her in. Mm-hmm. You know, people know her well, or sorry, people don't really know her super well at this point. I'm um, just kind of in a different friend group, but I think some of the folks would know, yeah. Yeah, there's some folks who are going to be there who know that you fucked her. <laughs> We're going to put it bluntly, then, yeah. <laughs> well, that's how the gays do it. We put shit bluntly. Um, and there's probably going to be booze, at least, mood-altering substances in this cabin in the woods. You know, you know what's funny is actually we're pretty much all sober, except a few people are all in AA. Oh, okay. We've been sober quite a while. Oh, okay, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, her, her boyfriend is not, um, but not like an alcoholic. Yeah, I, I guess the presence of booze or drugs doesn't really change my advice, because if you're gathering together in a large group and there are people in that group who know you two hooked up, Unless you swear all of them to secrecy too, and even if you do, what are the chances that someone might say something in just... Honestly, I think, I think almost none. I feel like it's actually really low. Yeah, I don't think you can eliminate yeah, just, that. But, yeah, just because they, they don't know her super well, they don't know her boyfriend, um, and I think they would have enough discretion being like, oh, she's with her boyfriend, why would they? You assume, I don't know, I mean, maybe you assume they would have enough uh, discretion. Who knows <laughs> if one of them is alone with that guy for a second, what if they just assumed, you know, what if they assumed, as you've made an assumption, that he knows and is totally cool with it and somebody casually says to him, you know, I think that's great that you're chill with this because a lot of guys wouldn't be. And then he's like, chill with what? <laughs> right? <laughs> I would hope not, yeah. And so that, that, that's my concern, is that rather than you telling okay. or, you know, or, or she's the one who should tell him, that he hears about it from a third party. And so he knows other yeah. people know something that he didn't know and is embarrassed and humiliated by it. And, you know, if it's revealed on the trip, then you're all trapped in the same little cabin together and then it becomes a murder mystery potentially. <laughs> Yeah, that was my fear after I realized the book house that was trapped in the middle of the woods. And uh, yeah, it would just be very awkward. But yeah, that's kind of what I was leaning on. You know, I felt like she should tell him. And this is me contradicting myself because a couple of weeks ago, I think there was a woman going to a party with a boyfriend and there was going to be a guy at that party that she hooked up with and the boyfriend didn't know. And I didn't think she needed to say anything to her boyfriend for the reasons that you're, you know, this woman cited, like she's not you know, relationship isn't a deposition. You don't have to like disclose everything. There isn't a period of discovery where every like person you ever hooked up with or kissed is, you know, you give that you know, driver's licenses and references and background information. Uh, you're allowed to hold some things back, but in the holding back, uh, you know, if that other person were to find out uh, and then feel embarrassed or humiliated because they spent a weekend in a cabin with somebody who fucked their girlfriend with other people who knew and they didn't know, they might be angry about that, about being put in that position. Even if, you know, they may argue and it might even be true that if they'd known in advance, they wouldn't have had such a problem with it. Right? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. But I, you say um, that you brought it up with this girl and now she's anxious. Well, she's probably anxious because she's afraid you're going to force the issue or say something yourself if she doesn't. You might want to reassure her that she you're not knows, She knows that I won't. I think her anxiety was she was like, well, why would I need to tell him? And I kind of said a lot of the same reasons you did. And I think that made her anxious because she's like, oh, shoot, I never thought about that. What if he does find out? Um, you know, it would be much worse. And I've, you know, had that conversation with her, you know, especially because they're moving here. They're going to get married. This is someone I really want to have a long-term friendship with. And, 
you know, I feel like it would come out, even if it's not now, it'll be two years from now or something, and he knows that we, you know, hang out every week. I just, you know, don't want that weirdness. I just better yeah, just get it out there. Don't want that awkwardness. And and everybody's, I assume, you're, you're 34, I assume these people are roughly close yeah. to your age? Yeah, a little bit younger. But yeah. Okay, so they know that each other, both of them, have had other partners messed around, dated people, hooked up, that they were sexually active adults before they came together. And I would encourage, you know, this to me is like, I'm always flabbergasted by this shit in straight land because this doesn't happen in gay land. Like a lot of us are, you know, friends with ex-boyfriends or, you know, we socialize with people who dated the guy we're married to before we met them. And it's not a big problem because we we don't have the luxury of that being a problem because there's so, you know, there's so many fewer of us as a percentage of the population that we can't just exile people and say, you know, there's a bro code and you're not allowed to date my exes or whatever. We can't pull that kind yeah. of shit because we don't have this endless supply of, you know, potential straight partners to draw on. And sometimes we meet the person we should be with through friends who already fucked that person and we're pretty chill about it. Hopefully this guy can gay it up a little bit and just be chill about it. <laughs> And not feel like he's in competition with you or that you have to be disappeared from his fiance's wife or pardon me, life to feel comfortable and secure. Yeah, Hopefully yeah. he feels secure in the relationship, despite the fact that some people that she slept with are still alive, that she didn't kill and eat them all when she was done. If she wasn't going to marry them. You know, yeah, and it's what I gather about this guy, he seems to be much more laid back and he doesn't seem to have any, like, jealousy streaks. I think that's a good sign. Would that, you know, just from your experience, would you say that straight guys tend to exude more jealousy? Just because I've had so many horrible experiences with it. I just, yeah, I don't know. Paradoxically, land, maybe I think straight guys can be, you know, straight guys are, we have a culture that tells straight guys that the women that they date are their property. And that it's a violation of basically okay. their property rights if somebody else has touched the woman they dated. And there's a lot of, you know, insecurity uh, around desire, inadequacy um, that people of all genders can bring to the table. Uh, and yeah, it seems particularly toxic in uh, opposite sex relationships. And there are a lot of women who've been abused, even killed by partners in jealous rages. So I don't blame women for being nervous about these sorts of disclosures because there's evidence in the news every day about angry, jealous men who couldn't handle their wife or girlfriend, divorcing them, moving on, dating somebody else, having an ex, having an ex that they're brought into contact with professionally or socially and, and abusing them, punishing them for having a past that didn't involve them, the person they're with now, the, the, the abuser. Yeah, so women sense. aren't being irrational when they have fears around this kind, exactly this kind of disclosure based not on the, you know, the reactions of the guy they're with now, but the reactions of other guys that may not, that their, their girlfriends or wives may not have seen coming either. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. It's a cultural piece for sure. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've been threatened at that Facebook messages from guys I don't know friends, husbands, and you know, this really is a toxic culture with that. Oh my God, that, that just freaks me out in, in gay land. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, one time uh, my husband messed around with somebody else and I sent that person an email that said, if you ever touch my husband again, I'll have you killed. Uh, and he instantly understood that it was a joke. 
that this isn't a message that you would get from another gay guy about the boyfriend at the time. Uh, but, but my money, but I'm going to come down on the side of disclosure because it's not just something that you know and she knows. There are other people, if he gets, you know, folded into the community, uh, you know, is worked into your friend group, somebody could say something about you yeah. and her in front of him years from now, even praising him, which is, yep. I've seen yep. that happen, praising him for how chill he is about something that he's been chill about because he <laughs> didn't know about it. And then yeah, he didn't know how chill he actually was. And, and then it can get, you know, even if he's not the jealous type, he may be feel angry that she assumed he would be jealous or angry about yeah. it. Paradoxically, he's angry that she assumed that he might be angry about it, but he's angry about not being told and, you know, the interactions he had with you that other people were scrutinizing. And if they knew that he didn't know, feeling pity for him or feeling like he's a fool or if he only knew, what would this interaction be like? Yeah, she's going to need to she's going to need to tell him and hopefully it will be chill. Yeah, it'll, it'll come out sometime. And that was my fear. So yeah, thanks for uh, confirming that with me. And you know, I'll have to sit down and have that conversation with her and, and, and tell her what we talked about. Luckily, the trip isn't tomorrow. You got a whole, most of a month for him to we process do, yeah. this. It, yeah, and that cool down period just in case. Yeah, better he knows now and then go on the trip than find out on the trip. Good luck. Yeah, when we're stuck in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds like a teen thank horror you. I really movie. appreciate you. Potentially. All right, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Hi Dan, I'm a 30 year old cis heteroflexible man and I spent most of my 20s in a long term relationship in the past several years single dating women and uh, rediscovering how much I enjoy having sex be a part of my life and one thing that I had kind of forgotten was how problematic my girth can be and as soon as I even allow myself to consider it an issue I kind of roll my eyes at myself and think what a problem to have but it kind of is in particular because it's really difficult to orgasm without a prolonged, intense P and V bout that not everyone enjoys, given the girth, or can enjoy, I suppose. And I have zero problem with not having an orgasm at all from that, but I find that a lot of partners are really upset if it happens frequently, and it does. And when I was much younger, I would fake it and run off to remove a condom out of sight, but that never felt right. And now, as someone who more often plays a dom role, I feel like it's more expected that I finish in that way. And I tried to convince partners in the past that I enjoy sex, whether or not I orgasm. And I really do, not fooling myself. So I wonder what your advice is for how to reassure them or get them on the same page. And I guess alternatively, uh, what's your advice for more frequently having an orgasm, maybe for everyone's sake? Girth, you've got a thick, fat, wide penis and it can be a problem for endurance. Some people can accommodate a girthy penis for a long PIV session, and some people can't accommodate a girthy penis for any PIV session if you are particularly girthy and they're particularly narrow. So how do you work around this? How do you find partners who don't require you to have an orgasm or don't think the sex is any less spectacular if you don't come uh, at, at the conclusion, well, you just put that out there about yourself, that you enjoy having sex, particularly DS sex. You enjoy this kind of sex play and you enjoy getting your partners off. And it's not always important to you, not always necessary for you to climax yourself. I assume that you can masturbate. I assume that you can make yourself come. So it would be possible even in the absence of 
PIV or sustained PIV intercourse for you to climax, for you to, to, to get off or be gotten off by your partner in some other way during sex play. If you define sex more broadly, and if you're into DS play, you're already defining sex more broadly than just simple PIV or PIB or PIT. So you can do other stuff, get off in other ways. You can also, if you're with an established partner and you know that there's only so long that she can take the kind of pounding that your dick needs to climax during PIV, you can also get yourself closer. You can fuck for a little while. You can masturbate. You can pull out. You can jack off. You can get yourself closer to that point of orgasmic inevitability, which is my favorite phrase, uh, and then dive back in for the last 10 or 20 thrusts that they can handle and enjoy handling. And sometimes there is pleasure in enduring something in a DS context for a partner's pleasure. So even if it's uncomfortable sometimes in DS sex, for the sub, it's not always unwelcome. Of course, you need to figure that out and make sure that's the case and obtain the sub's consent uh, before you go to that place of the sub, you know, gritting their teeth and enduring it for the dom's pleasure. But there's a kind of a psychological pleasure in that kind of you know, endurance for the sub in certain circumstances, pre-negotiated and pre-consented to. So you can work around this in a lot of different ways. And since you're dating someone who is a savage Lovecast listener who turned you on to the show, I trust that they have the skills after listening for however many years to have this conversation with you. And it sounds like just based on your call, you already have the skills yourself to have this conversation with the person you really need to have this conversation with. And that's your sex partner. We recently took a call from a woman whose husband's mom had died and he was grief struck because he couldn't be at the funeral. And it made us want to talk again with Caitlin Doty. She's a mortician, funeral industry rabble rouser and host of the popular YouTube series, Ask a Mortician. Hey, Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I mean, as well as can be expected in these trying times. <laughs> they are. But uh, yeah. They are trying times, and I'm glad you're well. Um, we, we've been talking a lot on the show about how the epidemic, the pandemic, has really changed uh, dating and people's expectations around you know, what a romantic relationship can be or what a date can be. We talk about it all the time, but how has it impacted your cheap interest, uh, funerals, death? How is it impacting grieving? Oh, wildly. And in some ways, I'll talk about the bad part, but I think there are also some hopeful things to think about in this context as well. Um, first of all, for that gentleman, I feel absolutely terrible. I think that I have a pretty good positive relationship with death because I've been working on it and doing it for 13 years. But there was a moment in maybe May, kind of the thick of, of the pandemic, where I realized that my parents live in Hawaii. And if one of them were to get COVID and die, I would not be able to fly there and be there for the funeral. And that wrecked me. That thought absolutely tore me apart because my advocacy is be with the corpse, be involved, be present for the funeral, be there to push the button to start the cremation. And I wouldn't have been able to do any of that. And I was not prepared for that reality. 
So if you so I can completely sympathize and feel and feel absolutely terrible for the fact that he wasn't able to be there. So what can be done for the person or persons, uh, sometimes large extended families, friends who can't be there? What you know, we talk a lot about, you know, online dating and even having, you know, public health departments encouraging more people to, you know, seek sex online. Is there a way to grieve online, to do death online that can 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 meet some of those needs for 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 be feeling present or being present? There is, um, you know, there's examples of having Zoom funerals or there's people in Animal Crossing who are setting up memorials and cemeteries within the game. Um, and I think all of that is very valid and can be really helpful. But I think that something else to maybe a different way to look at it is that you shouldn't be okay with it or looking for easy fixes. You can say, I wasn't able to be there for my mom when she was dying or for her funeral. And that pisses me off. Mm -hmm. That makes me really upset. And it wasn't fair. And actually the funeral industry is kind of set up to do that in many ways anyway, to keep us away from our dead and to, to not make it easy to, to have this kind of connection when someone dies. And this may be one of the many systems that we're looking at now, like our healthcare or are the way that we do sex workers or, or sex workers' rights or the way we help poor or marginalized people, that is not working. And I want to take my grief, and maybe not right now, you're not ready, but when you are ready, I want to take this grief and this negative experience and turn it into change and and use it for something good as we start to come out of the pandemic. So if seeing or being with the body uh, of, the, of the dead, of the, you know, the deceased loved one, is important and it helps people grieve and draw the grief out. Maybe um, is, is seeing it online. I mean, it's not the same, but is it better than not seeing the body online? Is a Zoom funeral? Is you know, I've seen people mock the idea of Zoom funerals. Is it better than not being able to attend the funeral at all? To the the camera on the casket. That's a fantastic question and one that I don't think we know the answer to yet. We're kind of entering this new world. Um, my advocacy has always been that we don't don't mediate the experience. You know, by embalming or putting makeup on dad, you're mediating the experience. You're making it more distant from the reality of death. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's no there's no denying that there's a slightly dystopian element to just putting the camera on dad and letting it run and you can see it. But at the same time, you know, we don't want to have school like that either, but this is what we have to do and we have to band together and, and make these things happen. So I think you can simultaneously say, you know, it was weird to look at dad's body over Zoom for an hour. But at the same time, this is the reality. And I did what I had to do. And I did the very best that I could for me and my family. And, you know, I'm glad that I had at least that moment to see him. You know, you can have all of those feelings at once. And all of them are, are equally valid in this weird scenario. You've been waging a good war on an exploitative funeral industry for a long time. Um, do you think the pandemic is going to hasten the, you know, embalm and box it, uh, unless you're Catholic, in which case we get to have a wake for a few minutes. Um, industry, do you, do you think it's going to hasten the demise of this industry that, that, that you're such a vocal and persuasive critic of? I mean, your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> I, I hope so. I uh -huh. think, I, again, like I sort of mentioned some of those other like things that the pandemic is, we know that we have a bad healthcare system, but the pandemic is like 
hey, let's put a big fat spotlight on how bad it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the pandemic is definitely doing that with with funerals and funeral service. And it's making us go, hey, wait a second, like people are dying and and we can't be there and we feel trapped and we don't know how to grieve. Yeah, you're trapped and you don't know how to grieve. And that was true before the pandemic for a lot of people as well. And so I hope that what we've seen is that every time there's a, a large death event or mass death event, um, whether a pandemic or a war in United States history, the death industry really does shift and change afterwards. What are the and so I'm certainly not happy that we're in a pandemic, but uh, but I am I'm trying to be hopeful about how we can move forward when it does end. What are two or three ways that the death industry really needs to change? If you had to pick two or three changes that might come <laughs> out of this pandemic, what are your top two or three? I hope that people question the cost of funerals, especially since we're going to be in an economic tough spot coming out of the pandemic. I hope that they feel comfortable checking different prices and calling different places until they find a place that they feel is reasonable and ethical. Um, I hope that they don't feel like the quote unquote traditional funeral with the embalming and the casket and that costs $10,000 is the only way to do it, that they look into alternative funeral options and they look into other ways. Um, And I hope that they just know their rights. I hope they know that if you want to keep mom at home when she dies and share stories and do her makeup at home, you can do that. If you want to do it at the funeral home, but not have her embalmed, you can do that. If you want to be present for the cremation and watch her go into the machine, you can do that. I hope that it just, it becomes something that people are more aware of and that they feel they deserve more from. Can I ask you for some relationship advice? Oh gosh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, immediately there's crickets. I was like raging before and now I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> well, no, like it, it's just interesting, uh, you know, hearing you talk about that, you know, the traditional funeral and, and the changes like to see made. Terry and I have talked about what happens when we die and, you know, if I predecease him or he predeceases me and we have very different ideas about what we want done. I want, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I want a casket. I want maybe to be embalmed. I don't know to wear makeup. <laughs> Uh, and I want a big <laughs> Victorian headstone. I want to be under the ground and I want something carved on it. Uh, cause I like to walk through graveyards and read the inscriptions and think about the people that whose <laughs> bodies I'm walking over. Cause I'm morbid that way. Uh, and Terry doesn't want any of that for himself and says, if I die first, he's not going to do any of that for me. Uh, and what he wants is to be cremated and have his ashes scattered and I don't want to do that to him if he dies. So how do we resolve this dispute in our relationship? Our very different ideas about what, you know, imposing, he would impose on me what he wants in death and I would impose on him what I would want in death. What do we do? Uh, well, first of all, it's probably a metaphor for other aspects of your relationship, but that's for you to to, to dig deeper <laughs> into. Um, I will say though that like the fact that you each have strong, well-thought-out opinions on what you want makes you more advanced than 90% of the population. So you're already doing it right by knowing those things. And I actually don't have a problem with you being embalmed and the whole like kit and caboodle Victorian cemetery. I think that's wonderful, especially because you have meaning and reason behind it. You didn't just show up at the funeral home and accept the $10,000, $20,000 funeral bill. This is what you want. And I think, you know, I think that maybe you should just lean into what the other one wants and accept it. And you should start thinking about how 
you will cremate and and scatter Terry and he should start thinking about how he's, you know, pick out the the skull on the tombstone for you. Um, and just accept that you both have really put the work into the hard work into thinking about it and coming up to this best case scenario for yourselves. And if they don't look like each other, that's totally fine. And that's probably what makes your relationship work in a weird way. Great. Two more questions quickly before we let you get back to your funeral revolution. Uh, we've heard from a lot of people over the last six months who are really happy about not having to go to some destination wedding or other that they were dreading. You know, we're talking about the people who are upset that they can't go to the funeral. There has to be some people out there who are psyched that they're not having to go to the funeral right now. I think they are, but I think I would say that that comes from a lack of meaning in the modern funeral. I think a lot of millennials and now Gen Xers, Gen Zers, any anyone in the younger generation, they go to a funeral and they don't get a lot out of it. And that's the funeral industry's fault. The funeral industry has to change to make sure that something you're coming to is a meaningful experience that moves your grief along and changes you in some way and makes you feel feelings and good and bad. So, yeah, I I think it's not surprising that some people are happy to get out of funerals because we kind of treat them like doctor's appointments. You played death in an episode of the new Netflix series, Midnight Gospel. I'm halfway through it. I've seen the Anne Lamott episode. I haven't seen your episode yet. Uh, but I got to know, is this the first time you've been asked to personify death? Uh, I mean, I've personified. I've thrown on a Grim Reaper outfit myself <laughs> just for my own purposes. But yeah, it's, 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 it's such a good thing. It's interesting. People think that I was just like hired to do voice acting as opposed to it coming from a podcast. Mm-hmm. So no one yet has just asked me to do voiceover work. But hey, I am... I am open well, to you it. You have a great voice. I live in Los Angeles. And, Give me a call. And Midnight Gospel is a, an animated series created from an already existing uh, podcast series where they took the interviews that have been conducted with the podcast and just wrote these, you know, these animated episodes in this alternative universe where the person being interviewed and the person interviewing them go on this kind of absolutely bizarre and not so adventure it's incredible i'm four episodes in and it's just amazing it's it's really wild i sat down and watched it and i was like oh this is good this is really good it it is really good wait till you get to the end just just wait till you get to the end it'll hit it'll hit you hard yeah nancy's seen it all the way through and he she is uh warning me to brace myself and be in a good place when i watch the final episode so i can't wait yeah. Caitlin Doty, mortician, funeral industry rabble rouser, host of the insanely popular YouTube series Ask a Mortician. Her most recent book, Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? Big Questions from Tiny Mortals is terrific. It's out now. Go read it. Caitlin, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was great to reconnect. Thank you for having me back. All best. Hey, Dan. Um, middle-aged, white male, Midwest, uh, hetero. Basically, ever since I started having sex as a teenager, I've had an excruciating hard time getting off. I would literally have sex for an hour and not get off and uh, reach climax. And it kind of sort of made me become what I consider a pleasure giver. I was always more about my partner's pleasure than mine because I knew I probably wouldn't achieve orgasm. And... um, this has been a problem with some of my relationships over the years. At first, women seem to be very okay with this, and I explain to it, and I'll finish manually for them. 
but two relationships go. I had a girlfriend cry about it and tell me that she felt like a bad girlfriend and that maybe I wasn't into her as much as I should be because of this problem. And when it ended, it was it, a lot of that had to do with that, I believe. Not 100%, but a good amount. And we were on a small break at one point, and she was crying when we got back together because I had hooked up with a, a friend of mine, and she was terrified that I'd actually gotten off with her every time. Um, my ex-wife and I, when we were trying to have a child, this led to a lot of complications with us because, again, it was a very hard act for me to do. And we were trying, you know, in vitro is very expensive. And I think that actually led to a lot of our problems because she believed I didn't want a child because of this. I am bipolar. I know that now. I wasn't diagnosed until later in life. But this has been a problem since I was a teenager. And I don't feel like anyone ever really covers this. When I've talked about it with my doctor, they seem to not care ever. And the counselors I've had over it most believe that this isn't really a big deal. One believes I was doing it because I was trying not to lose control. I'm calling now because I'm dating a new woman and she's very much wanting me to finish. And I've gotten to the point where I don't want to disappoint another relationship like I did in my past. Any advice, anything you can recommend? Because the internet is not really helping me on this one. You've got to work with the dick you've got. And you've got to work with the way the dick you've got works. You know, there are a lot of women out there who can't climax from PIV intercourse alone. 75% of women, according to the best research, can't climax just from PIV intercourse alone. While the clitoris is a very large organ and extends back into the body and is adjacent to the vaginal canal, the clitoral shaft, a lot of women require focused, direct clitoral stimulation directed at the, the head of the clitoris, the glands of the clitoris, which is outside and above the vaginal opening. And for some women, PIV intercourse gives them all the stimulation of the clit that they need, incidental stimulation, if not direct clitoral gland stimulation, to climax. But most women require more. They require being eaten out. They require a vibrator to be incorporated deftly into PIV sex in order to climax. That doesn't mean they're broken. That doesn't mean that their bodies don't work. That doesn't mean they're not enjoying the sex. And we yell at men who yell at women that there's something wrong with them or they're broken if they can't just come from PIV intercourse. Well, there are people who yell at men who can't come just from PIV intercourse and tell them there's something wrong with them. And I'm going to yell at those people because some guys – can't come. They can thrust and thrust and thrust forever and it's not going to get them there and they may need a little extra stimulation to climax. Now, some guys it's just play with their nipples and they get there or some guys it's put a butt plug in and they magically suddenly can get there because they're firing on more cylinders. Some guys fire on all cylinders, play with their butts, play with their nipples while they fuck and talk dirty and they Magically, this guy who couldn't climax just from thrusting can climax when there's all this additional stimulation coming at them. You know, all these other erogenous zones, including the one between the ears, being engaged. All right, backing way up, you say you're bipolar and it doesn't sound like you've gotten a good response from the med professionals that you've spoken to about your mental illness. Well, they could be unrelated. There are lots of people who are on 
medications that make it more difficult for them to climax. You don't mention being on meds. I assume you're on meds, but you only were recently diagnosed as bipolar and this has been an issue for you or it's been made an issue for you by your sex partners forever. So it predates whatever medications you might be on for bipolar disorder. So this is probably unrelated. It's just a coincidence. There are lots of people who, lots of men, lots of dick havers, lots of front poles out there who are, are on meds for d- depression or anxiety uh, and, or other mental health concerns, and it makes it more difficult for them to climax. Some guys find that taking Viagra makes it easier for them to get an erection, but a little harder for them to climax. And that can be a benefit. In some ways, it makes guys last longer, but can also become an issue. And it can be an issue if that person's partner freaks out and assumes that it's taking a long time for this person to come or this person not coming during every sexual encounter is evidence they're not really attracted to them. But I'm sorry, if the dick is hard, the dude is into you and the dude is into it. It is hard to fake an erection. So you can tell your female partner to take the erection as the affirmation that she seeks in your orgasm, that the erection itself is proof that you are into her. And then do what works for you when you're alone. If you had difficulty climaxing during masturbation, I assume you would have mentioned that, so I'm just going to assume that you can get yourself off. Well, you can deploy those same techniques in partnered intercourse. You can incorporate whatever it is that you do when you masturbate into partnered sex in the same way that women who require a vibrator on their clit during PIV to climax during PIV can incorporate that vibrator into PIV if they have a partner who's not an asshole about it or not an insecure bag of slop about it. So what you need to say to your new partner is, it has always been this way with every sex partner I've ever had. This is the way my dick works. Here are the things that I do to get me a little closer to climax and get me over the edge during partnered sex, during PIV sex. And we're going to do these things together. And it's going to be super hot that we're doing these things together. But my orgasms aren't look ma, no hands orgasms where there are just things happening to my dick with this other person or I'm just thrusting and I come. My orgasms are a little more complicated as is the case with many, many, many most women out there. Orgasms are a little more complicated than just thrust. That's what you need to do. You need to be that clear and direct and unashamed and unapologetic about the way your dick works in the same way that all of us sex advice racket people out there encourage women to be clear and unapologetic and unashamed and direct about how their twats work. Hey Dan, active duty military lady here about to deploy to the sandbox. My question is whether or not I should bring my vibrator. I'm pretty vibrator dependent to get off, but have been able to get myself off without it in the past. It just takes a hell of a lot longer and usually requires porn. So I'm going to be gone for over six months and kind of feel like this might be a good opportunity for me to work on getting off without a vibrator more consistently, but I also can't imagine not orgasming for six months if my experiment doesn't go well. Thoughts? Thanks. You know, if it works, it works. If you found out what works for your body, what works for your clit, and it's the vibrator that gets you there, I would encourage you to take the vibrator, not to regard yourself as dependent. I know we've talked a lot on the show about death grip syndrome, where a guy just strangles his dick when he masturbates or masturbates rough and dry in a way that partnered sex 
feels so different to his dick that his dick just doesn't respond or can't respond, can't get off to that kind of stimulation. And the answer for some of these guys who want to be able to come during partner sex is to retrain their dicks, to stop masturbating like that, to vary their masturbatory routine. And that works. Sometimes, sometimes a guy will go six months a year, not climaxing during partnered sex, not masturbating the way he used to masturbate, even if he can't get off when he does try to masturbate and new neural pathways will be carved and suddenly his dick will respond to other kinds of stimulation and he will climax. But some guys don't, they don't get there. And this is, you know, you just have to accept this is how their dick works and their need to incorporate into partnered sex, whatever it was that we were doing that worked for their dick. And so you going away and retraining yourself. I'm not opposed. I, I make that recommendation to a lot of guys with death grip syndrome and maybe you have death vibe syndrome. Maybe you so acclimated to those sensations that you're dependent on a vibrator more psychologically than physiologically. It could also be the case that you need a vibrator in order to come, that you need that deep tissue sort of vibe sensation to get there and get off. So if you don't take the vibrator, you're looking at six months without orgasms. And I think that if you're deployed, if you're off in the sandbox and taking those risks, maybe this isn't the right six months to challenge yourself in this way, that you will need this release, this pleasure, the tension release at least of reliable orgasms. So I want to encourage you to take that vibrator. And if you want to run that experiment when you get home, you have my support. Do it when you get home. But now, this deployment, take that vibrator and thank it for its service. Hey, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old straightish woman living in a large city in the Midwest, and I have a question about being unrejected. Uh, so for some context, I just graduated from college and moved to this new city during the quarantine about three months ago. I also ended a long-term relationship I wasn't happy in when I moved, um, and I had no sex drive towards the end of this relationship. But after ending the relationship, I became super, super horny, um, and I met this guy who's exactly my type, like super, super hot. And basically, we went on one date and ended up having sex, which is not normal for me. Um, and we had a lot of trouble keeping our hands off each other ever since that happened. Uh, he introduced me to some kinky stuff, too, that I'd never tried. And it was a really great time. Weird thing, though. Almost two months ago, he very suddenly called things off, saying that he didn't feel as strong of a connection as he wanted to, and that I'm a really wonderful person, but we're just really different people. And so I was super bummed, embarrassed, and felt kind of stupid because I really liked him. The sex was the best I ever had. And I thought he was really into me too. It just seems like he was. Um, and I'm also just kind of an insecure person who's kind of prone to depression. So overall, it was just not a fun time. So fast forward to about three weeks ago now, we randomly made plans to hang out as friends and so we went to a few socially distanced bars and late in the night, he tells me that he made a huge mistake. He's been thinking about me and that he self-sabotaged and that I check all of his boxes. And so I don't have a whole lot of self-respect and he's smoking. So I slept with him that night and have been doing so a lot ever since. 
Um, and so now he says that he wants me to be his girlfriend um, and that I'm the kind of girl that he'd love to bring home to, and show off to his family. Like he's saying a lot of nice stuff, but I can't help but feel really insecure about him rejecting me before. Um, I've been in the kind of relationship before where I was way more into the guy than he was into me. And I'm afraid that that's going to happen again here. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's the case in this scenario. So we've had conversations about it, um, and he's been very apologetic and respectful, but I'm still kind of struggling with this. So Dan, how does someone deal with being unrejected? I can't promise you that you won't end up in a situation where you're more into this guy than he's into you. There's no way for you to know with any certainty whether he's less into you right now than you're into him. It sounds like he's pretty fucking into you. If he's talking about wanting to introduce you to his parents, if he's telling you you tick all the boxes and then he made a terrible mistake dumping you for whatever reason he got cold feet, you might have to take that yes, all those yeses for an answer. And that is a risk. It is always an emotional risk to say yes to someone because they could be deluded about their actual feelings for you. They could be lying about their actual feelings for you. Their feelings for you may be more transient than your feelings are for them. It is always a risk that there will be an imbalance in passion or commitment or anything else or compatibility in a relationship. And so if you never want to enter into a relationship again, uh, unless there's some assurance from someone, someone else with a better podcast maybe, that you aren't running any risks, including the risk of being more into some dude than he's into you, you can't have that. that, that you're not going to get that. There, there's no guarantee of that. There's no possibility of that. There's no eliminating this risk. So he's smoking. He's good sex. You like him. If he hadn't have called things off when he did for the time that he did, you would have no hesitation about being in this relationship. So I just want to tell you to go for it and enjoy it for however long it lasts. And that advice applies whether it lasts for two more weeks or it lasts for five more decades. Enjoy it for as long as it lasts. And, you know, remind yourself, like Shakespeare told us, the course of true love never did run smooth. And that little bump in the road when you first met could be an indication that this is true love. And now in another Shakespeare move, I'm going to uncork a bottle of poison and pour it in your ear. The insecurity you feel after he called things off when he did, the only caution uh, I would give you is in looking at him uh, and assessing how he treats you. Uh, and other aspects and other areas uh, in every aspect of your relationship. Is he one of those guys who's trying to make you feel insecure? Was it not a mistake he made in, in, in cutting things off when he did, but was there intention behind that? Was it to make you feel like you're walking on eggshells to make you feel like you could lose him at any time so that he has more power and control in the relationship? Was there malice? If there was no malice, if you think he is honest and good and he is not trying to assert power or control over you by constantly making you feel insecure in this and other ways, then I don't think it's an issue. That doesn't mean I think it's going to last forever. 
You could discover after six months with him that he's not who you want to be with long term for whatever reason. He could discover the same thing about you after six months. You are very early in this relationship. You are still in the discovery process and the discovery process is about, you know, finding things out about your partner and sometimes you find out things about your new partner that make you want to be with them and sometimes you find out new things about your partner that make you want to end it. He could end it in six months. You could end it in six months. But if right now it's working and you don't think there was any malice, any effort in his part to make you feel insecure by calling it off when he did, enjoy. Enjoy the smoking guy. Enjoy the great sex. Tell his parents I said hi. Hi, Dan. So I'm a type 1 diabetic and I'm at risk. So this whole thing has been kind of scary. And as the world starts to open up, I'm just pretty sketched out in general. I was quarantined with my boyfriend for quite a long time. And I've been really lucky that I have a lot of great friends in the area. So I get to see them, social distance from them in parks with PPE on. And he unfortunately is more new to the area and just doesn't know that many people. So if you see him and they're my friends, he just got invited to a wedding. And he's from a more rural area. And I, and I know for a fact the people he hangs out with back home are not complying with COVID restrictions and he wants me to go. I kind of said, if we can keep six feet apart, keep our masks on, et cetera, et cetera. And he doesn't, he, he thinks the reality is with drinking and everything, it's just not going to be possible. So he was like, it's no problem. I'm going to decline, but I feel horrible. Like he's very depressed right now. He's alone. He doesn't have friends to see. He's been only seeing me. And it's just putting a lot of pressure on us. So a part of me wants to go stay back home with my parents, who are in my little COVID circle at this point, and not see him until he gets a negative test. I don't know if this is cool. Like, I feel bad restricting people when I have a good situation. So you asked him not to go to this wedding and he shouldn't go to this wedding in this rural area. Iowa is currently having the worst outbreak of COVID in the world. So it's not just big cities. It's not just coastal areas as the fucking Republican dickwads wanted us to believe at the outset because people haven't been safe in rural areas because people didn't take it seriously because people listened to fucking Donald Trump. Now Iowa voted for Trump. 2016 has the worst outbreak in the world. So yeah, you're right to be concerned that people in this rural area, if you know them to be conservatives, if you know them to be Trump flag waving COVID idiots, aren't wearing masks, aren't practicing social distancing. The fact that there is a wedding to invite people to at this moment is proof that they aren't taking this seriously, that they aren't practicing social distancing. If you're inviting people to come to your wedding from all over the country, yeah, you've already outed yourself as somebody whose wedding you wouldn't want to go to. You know whose wedding you want to go to? The person who's waiting to have their wedding or maybe getting married officially and then waiting to have their reception and celebration until it's safe for people to gather again in large groups. So yeah, he shouldn't go to this wedding. And he's already told you he won't go to the wedding if it makes you uncomfortable or makes you feel unsafe and might actually make you un- might actually fucking kill you. And yet you are sitting there actually feeling bad and wrestling with 
guilt because he's depressed because he doesn't have friends where you are. Well, you can work on that and he can work on that safely while staying put. Him going to this wedding isn't going to magically endow him when he gets back to wherever you are with a million friends. Him going to this wedding is only putting him at risk, putting everyone at that wedding at risk, putting everyone he's exposed to on the way to and from that wedding at risk and putting you at risk. So no, he shouldn't fucking go to that wedding and you should take his yes for an answer and not feel guilty about it. I'm sorry. Take some responsibility here. You didn't want him to go and he's not going. And maybe out of guilt, you feel makes you a better person or gets you off the hook for telling him what you wanted from him just to feel terrible and conflicted about it. Well, don't, don't feel terrible and conflicted about it. You were clear about your needs, your personal safety and being responsible during this pandemic. And you created an option where he could go so long as he quarantines himself. That's not irrational, particularly for someone in a high-risk group to impose those conditions on a partner. You have done all the reasonable, rational things that could be expected of you. Stop torturing yourself about it. Stop feeling guilty about it. Feel entitled to your safety, which is what you've asked of your partner, from your partner. And you have a right to expect that your partner would prioritize your safety over an ill-advised rural wedding at this moment. But stop doing this this shit to him. I, I imagine this is super annoying to him to hear you say, oh, please don't go. And he says, okay, I won't go. And then you're like, oh, I feel terrible that you're not going. And then he has to comfort you because he's not going to the wedding that you asked him not to go to. No, stop it. You asked him not to go. He's not going. Ovary up. That's what you wanted. That's And that's good. It's good he's not going to that stupid fucking wedding. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a gay verse male. I've been listening to the show for years, and I've decided that now is the time to call you for some advice. I am um, in a relationship, and it's both of our first real relationship. We moved in together into a new city, and the sex has always been great, but it's been over a year, and now I am kind of missing having the option of versing more. Um, he's more a top. He's tried to bottom. He does bottom some time, but I'm more attracted to having the op- option to have sex with a verse or an actual bottom. And I think it's causing him, I think he can feel that and it's causing some insecurity in the relationship. We did date long distance for a long time in the beginning. And during that time we were a little open And then as things have gotten more serious, we've closed the relationship. And I've mentioned, or specifically I mentioned the other night, is this something that we're still talking about, having the option of me, maybe going outside the relationship to fulfill that verse side of me. And then him also, if he wants to have more sex, he can do that as well. And after that conversation, he, I think he really wants to keep it closed like permanently. And the way that I presented it was, you know, I, I just have a lot of anxiety around the idea of just being with having sex with one person for the rest of my life really makes me anxious, <laughs> makes me a little nervous. And, you know, he, I mean, later on that night, he did explain, he was, he said that that really is a concern for him, that I don't think he wants that at all. And he's nervous that we want different things, but 
The reason I'm calling is I don't know if it's just, you know, us moving in together the first few months of that and, and living in a new city and, you know, being in a, a relationship for the first time. Will this feeling of fear of monotony, monotony go away as we as I continue in the relationship? Or is this something that is just a complete red flag and I should leave? Years ago, and I don't have the title of this study in front of me, but they looked into gay male couples and they were trying to assess monogamy, non-monogamy, which were gay male couples likelier to practice. And one of the sort of hiccups in the data that had to be ironed out was that a lot of couples who described themselves as monogamous, who told researchers in initial interviews that they were monogamous, were having sex with other people together. And they felt that that was monogamy, that they were having three ways, sometimes with other guys. But because they only had sex with other people together, they filed that under monogamous behavior. Doesn't You don't say whether you threw that out. Your boyfriend is mostly a top, almost exclusively a top. Your verse, you would like to top guys who are really into bottoming every once in a while. Maybe that's something that you two could enjoy together. Maybe you could top some power bottom dude together. Maybe you could work deep. Maybe you could scratch DP off your bucket list. If you get the right bottom dude, you might want to throw that out there, but you've been really clear that you don't see yourself spending the rest of your life in a sexually exclusive relationship that you don't see him or any other guy that you might meet as the last person that you're ever going to have sex with. You need to get on the same page about that. That doesn't mean you need to get on the same page immediately. Most people in functional, healthy, loving, intimate, committed, long-term, non-monogamous relationships were monogamous at first, perhaps by default. A lot of straight people, I think that's the case. They just default into monogamy. They don't have a conversation. And a lot of gay male couples are monogamous at first uh, just to establish you know, that intimacy and that safety and that sense of security. It's not always necessary for all gay male couples to do that, but it's often the case that there will be a period in a new relationship and at a year together, this is still a new relationship where one partner or both partners wants it to be sexually exclusive for now. And opening up is something that has been acknowledged that will come in time and not as evidence of, you know, a fraying sexual connection or the relationship falling apart, but something that will come in time from a place of mutual desire and joyfulness where I will get to do this thing and still have you because you make that possible for me and it makes me love you more and vice versa in his case. So I don't think that you should break up right now because he's not there yet. Most people in happy non-monogamous relationships, if they had broken up the first time they had a conversation about non-monogamy and realized they weren't on the same page, well, then all those, most of those, the vast majority of those happy non-monogamous relationships wouldn't exist. So I think this guy, if you really love him, is worth more investment of time and more emotional investment from you. So long as you're being clear about what your long-term goals are and what sexual compatibility would look like for you over the long, long term. And that looks like a non-monogamous relationship, an open relationship. And then maybe in a year or two, he'll have come around to your position or maybe in a year or two, you'll have come around to his. That also can happen, but give it time. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is a gay 29-year-old man uh, in the Pacific Northwest. 
Um, Colin was probably kind of a stupid and weird question. So, um, even though I'm 29, I am still a virgin. Really haven't had a actual relationship. Uh, this partially due to like some issues accepting myself and being closeted, and then also like wanting a romantic relationship and only now realizing I'm probably a romantic. But once the pandemic is done and it's safe, I do kind of want to be able to go out and actually like have sex or a sexual relationship or friends with benefits situation. But um, the issue is like, I know I'm going to be bad the first time because like fear and anxiety and just general awkwardness. And so I would like my potential partner to know that I'm like really inexperienced and it's not going to be great because <laughs> I feel like if I don't disclose that, then like the like failure to meet expectations will just make it that much worse. But I don't know how, to talk about this with someone and like I can feel like I can hear you say like use your fucking words but like the issue is like I feel like if I use say this on tinder or like grinder then I'm gonna scare people away like knowing like well why are you revealing this about yourself and so it's like I just don't know how to really approach it or where I could talk to people about this like is there like a kink where people get off by being like helpful and nice to inexperienced people if you have any suggestions or if there's any like place I might book to talk to people that would be great wouldn't it be great if being nice and helpful were a kink were something that if both those things were things that or those things in tandem were things that got people off that would be awesome there are plenty of nice helpful people out there and i think you know use your words you knew i was going to say that you're just going to have to use your words you're just going to be honest about where you're at and your experience level and your nervousness where someone like you gets in trouble is in presenting yourself as experienced or you know what you're doing and you go to bed with somebody and they're sensing from you that you're uncomfortable or that you aren't experienced, that you kind of don't know what you're doing. but the, And then they feel lied to or they don't know what they're doing wrong. And the quickest way to make your experience an adventure or something fun for that person is to trust them with that information so that you know they're – getting to, to to be your first sex partner. And there are people out there who would be psyched to be your first sex partner, who'd be really into it, who'd be honored that you trusted them, who would then get off on or really enjoy showing you how not it's done, how they're done, how they do it, how they want to do it with and to you. But you got to be honest. Now, maybe it's not something you want to put at the top of your Tinder grinder profile. I am a gay virgin. I do not know what I am doing. I am seeking someone who is wants to break me in. Maybe you just lead with the normal things people lead with, your looks, your stats, your interests. And then after you've chatted with somebody for a little bit, you tell them. You get to do the big reveal. Actually, there's something that whoever I sleep with for the first time needs to know, which is it's the first time, not the first time I'm sleeping with you, the first time I'm sleeping with anybody. And in that moment, some guys may jet or ghost or whatever. They may just <laughs> disappear. Well, obviously that guy wasn't a guy who's interested in being your first and therefore not a guy you want to be your first. I've given this advice before. Maybe you've missed it on other shows. It's the guys who stick around, the guys who are delighted by your inexperience without any sign that they are hoping to take advantage of your inexperience or naivete, but delighted that you trusted them, interested in being your first sex partner, particularly at your age, interested in being your first sex partner. 
interested in that honored role. If they are good at it and good to you, they will always be a fond memory or who knows, maybe uh, you'll end up being boyfriends and they will always have been your first. And how special is that? Hey, everybody. Dan is on vacation for the week. And so guess who gets to read the tweets? It's me, Nancy. Farmer's Wife 88 tweets, I was today years old when I learned King James of the King James Bible was gay. All those judgmental Christians thumping their Bibles are thumping a gay man. I'm sure they have no idea, so I had to share. Thank you, Farmer's Wife 88. Thanks for tweeting, and welcome to Bible Study every Tuesday. At TBK365 tweets, Last night I took part in a sexy quarantine success story. As I basked in the glow, my giddy play partner asked, Can I tell Dan about this? Baffled, I said, Dan who? Dan Savage at Savage Lovecast. And I said, yes. All right. Welcome, TBK365, to the Quarantine Success Story Club. We hope that you record a version of it and send it in to us. And finally, at Juliana Abounza tweets, I LOL'd at the God loves you when you get on your knees quote on the last episode of the Savage Lovecast. So here's my contribution of Christian people not checking with so-called ex-gays before posting something. These are all Christian Spanish books. And she lists. Dig deeper. The control of the tongue. I was made to desire this mouth of mine, penetrating the darkness and little whores. Yeah. Yep. Sounds like there might be some secret messages in those Christian book titles. Uh, Thank you so much, everybody, for sending in your tweets. If you want Dan to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a response to the person who wants to sleep comfortably three or more in a bed. As a longtime parlay person, there's a really straightforward solution. Make your king-size bed, but not with king-size sheets on top. Use either full or queen-size sheets on top so that they overlap a little bit in the middle. That way, the person in the middle can get in and out of bed without calling over the people on the side, and they can regulate the temperature to their liking. Everyone has their sheets, everyone has their blankets, and everyone's comfortable had a comment for the caller who was looking for solutions as far as three people sleeping on a bed. Just got out of a relationship with a couple and I would spend every other weekend at their house and I would stay over usually a couple nights. And they had a king size bed and we would sleep widthwise. So like instead of, you know, straight up and down, we would all turn so that we had more space on the sides. Um, And then we would all have our own blanket and our own pillow. And that was great because you had the option to cuddle. But when you fell asleep, you could just kind of go into your own space and stick a leg out. And that worked great. Hi, Dan. I am calling in response to episode 724 um, about the guy who was wondering what he should do with him and his husband and his boyfriend while they sleep. I have experience with this. Um, I was in a triad and we put two queen size mattresses together in a room and we actually called it mega bed and it was great for sleeping and nobody was smushed and everybody had their little side of the bed. So yeah, that's what I recommend. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. You can also record your question on your phone using your voice memo app and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. 
If you missed the 15th Annual Hump Film Festival, we have brought it back online. We have several upcoming screenings, encore screenings by popular demand through October 10th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the Hump trailer and get your tickets for an upcoming screening. And they're still accepting submissions for the new podcast, Five Minute Fuck. They're looking for erotic fictional tales, sexy true stories, real encounters, whatever you think makes a great, dirty five-minute audio clip. They're going to compile the best into one great podcast series. And one, the best one, will be picked to be animated and included in the 2021 Hump Film Festival program. Go to 5min, that's F-I-V-E-M-I-N, fuck.com to learn more. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Caitlin Doty on Twitter at The Good Dad. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Love Cast. 